I heard that Bob, the good teacher that he is, let you all out early last week, so I'd like to make up for that this morning. Um, <laughs> thank you for laughing. We've been told that Galatians will serve to help ensure that we get the gospel right. That is my aim this morning, to get the gospel right. My name is Charlie Jackson, and uh, thank you for praying for me this week as I was ill. Uh, I serve as the director of ministry support on staff at Covenant Life. It's my honor to open the word of God and to proclaim it to you this morning. Uh, I appreciate that Hunter made mention that we would worship through giving. We've also worshiped through singing and through praying. And worship is not over this morning. We will worship the Lord by submitting ourselves to the preaching and teaching of his word. Paul Tripp calls it the inner lawyer. It's that part of you which always seeks to defend yourself, always seeks to justify yourself before others. We're all like this. You're driving to work and you're running late and you're already thinking what you're going to say to your boss when you get there. Oh, the traffic was bad. I hit every red light on the way. That project that you've been working on is overdue and you're asking for yet another extension because, man, just everything in my life is crazy right now. That chem final really wiped me. Volleyball's taking it out of me right now. We're always trying to justify ourselves before others in order to maintain some sense of good and upright character. And we're all like this. Everybody who's ever lived will seek to justify themselves in some way. And it started all the way back in the beginning, in the garden, when Adam said to God, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. This issue is at the core of today's passage. And the issue we're going to cover today is at the core of the doctrine of salvation in the book of Galatians. Everything in Galatians up until this point has been like the climb leading up to the drop on a roller coaster. Yet let me encourage you to avoid being overwhelmed by what we're going to consider today. Hopefully you'll be able to see what beauty and sweetness is to be found in this passage. For in this text, we see the doctrine of Christ's righteousness given freely to us through faith in him. I am speaking, of course, of the doctrine of justification. Justification that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. So let us pray and ask for God's help in understanding his word. Join me in prayer. O oh Lord God, let the words of your servant's mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Teach us your way, O oh Lord, and lead us on a level path. God, give us understanding. And we will keep your word and obey it. Lord God, help us to turn our hearts to you and hear what you will speak. May your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Oh God, our Father, we wish to see Jesus. And so by your Spirit's power, give us eyes to see his glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. If you've yet to turn... To the passage, I invite you to turn to the book of Galatians. If you're new to studying the Bible, you can take your Bible and turn to the middle, go to the right, you'll begin to see what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you continue moving to the right, 
you'll run into Acts and then the beginning of the epistles that are letters, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then immediately you'll run into what we call or what I call the General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. We're going to be in Galatians. That's for my kids. We're going to be in Galatians this morning, chapter 2. We've been studying it for quite some time uh, over the summer. And we'll look to seek to answer this question. What was Paul hoping to recover in the Galatian church, excuse me, the Galatian churches about the gospel? Another way of asking the same question is what might be wrong in my or your or our understanding of the gospel that needs careful attention and correction? And so to help answer that question, we'll divide this morning's text into three parts. Each part will have a a title to it. Those will serve as our sermon points. And each of those points begins with two words, we are. We are justified by faith in Christ. That's point number one. That'll take us through verses 15 and 16. And I'll repeat these as we go along. Point number two, we are dead to sin and alive to God. Verses 17 through 20. Point number three, we are recipients of God's grace in Christ. Verse 21. So let's take a look. Beginning in verse 15 and 16. Here Paul is going to give his big idea for the letter of Galatians. Verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And here's the big idea. Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I'd like to note, first off, that this seems to be a continuation of the quote that Paul began in verse 14. Some translations, including the New International Version and the New American Standard Bible, uh, put it that way. They put quotes around 14 and take it all the way down to verse 21. And I think that that's correct. I believe that it's a transcript of what Paul was saying to Peter in Antioch. And that makes verses 11 through 21 a unit of thought transitioning from the personal testimony that he has been using to argue for the validity of his gospel all the way into chapter 3 where he begins to argue theologically. So he's moving from a historical argument to a theological argument. And verses 14 through 21 bridge the gap between those two. And so much of what Paul writes in these verses will be further explored later in the letter as we move along. So consider these verses a preview of what is to come as we continue preaching through Galatians. Now, verse 15 begins with a contrast between Peter and Paul and then the Gentiles. Peter and Paul are Jews. That's what he means. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Gentile sinners was not some kind of uh, put down of the Gentiles. It simply meant that they lived outside of the law. People who live outside of the law are considered sinners by the Jews. And so he uses this contrast and a few others in the passage to make clear the argument that he's going to make. And so we move on to verse 16. We'll spend some time here. And he picks up on that contrast when he says to Peter, Yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is saying, Peter, 
You and I both know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why we have believed in him. In fact, Paul sounds an awful lot like Peter did in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council when the issue of circumcision was brought up because there was a question as to whether or not those who were Gentiles who had come to the faith ought to be circumcised. In that council, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, this is Acts 15, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. This is the same argument that Paul is making here. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. We're all going to be justified in the same way. Whether you're a Jew living under the law or a Gentile, guess what? You're a sinner in need of grace. And that's the soft irony of Paul calling the Gentiles sinners. He wasn't absolving himself of sin. He was leveling with them. Jews are no better off under the law than Gentiles are outside of the law in terms of being justified by the law. Why? He says that at the end of verse 16. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul knows that the law produces a knowledge of sin. We know this because some years later, after writing the book of Galatians, he penned a letter to the Romans, expanding on much of what he's already written here. Romans chapters 1 through 7 is basically the unabridged version of what Paul is saying in Galatians. And so he wrote this in Romans chapter 3 verse 20 about the law. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So there it is. Either you're a sinner like the Gentiles because you live outside of the law, or you're a sinner because you're a Jew, and that's what the law has revealed to you. The statement is universal. He has said no human being, no human being will be justified by works of the law. That's all of us. Remember, Paul's writing to a group of churches who are facing issues from within. The problem that is there is that some are within that flock advocating for something in addition to the gospel in order to be justified. You could call it gospel plus. This is the core of the issue at stake in Galatia. And it's also still a core issue today. Will you be justified by faith in Christ or by something else? Gospel Plus was Jewish Christians in the churches of Galatia pushing people to adopt at least certain requirements of the law in order to have an assurance of their salvation. And this is the error Paul's addressing and showing by telling them about what Peter did. Peter, by his actions, showed that works of the law were required for salvation. I think works of the law, in this context, should be understood in light of Galatians 3.10. Paul says this, all, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things, all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Therefore, Paul argues that if you adopt even a little bit of the law, you have to keep the whole thing. Again, in 5.3, he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In simple terms, I believe Paul is saying you can't be justified by works of the law, either in part or in whole. So what would Paul say to you if he were writing to you today? What do you seek to be justified by? What work do you think that you will do that will cause God to love you, to justify 
in the end? Is it how good your grades are? Is it how innovative you've been in life? How much money you've donated or time you've spent serving other people? Is it how prominent you are in your community? What efforts are you putting forward that you think will cause God to justify you in the end? Paul says the word justified three times in verse 16 and then again later in verse 17. And he'll bring it up four more times as the book goes along. But here's the first time that he's used this term in the letter. Justification at its core is a legal declaration. It's a verdict rendered by a judge that means that a person is in the right. An accusation has been brought against the person. And the judge has heard the evidence and he or she renders a verdict. In God's courtroom, God is the judge. You are the defendant. And the accusation brought against you has been sinfulness. God is perfectly just and all-knowing. There is no possibility of him rendering any kind of verdict that would be unfair, uninformed, biased, uh, in, a, in a wrong way, unjust. Every verdict that he will render is unimpeachable by nature of his character and his knowledge. In this trial, there's a host of damning evidence that's been thrown against you. Lying, cheating, Stealing, rudeness, lack of self-control, taking the name of the Lord in vain, slander, failure to pray, failure to be generous, idolatry, arrogance, adultery, etc. Upon examination, the evidence is more than enough to convict you. The prosecutorial team has done their due diligence. You stand ready to be convicted, but the courtroom hears a shocking verdict. God declares that you are just. How could that be? The verdict seems unjust. And so now we have a problem. With all the evidence stacked against you, how is it possible that you could ever be just in God's sight? What evidence has been delivered to render this decision? Was it works of the law? Is it something that you've done? No, it's not. That can't be it. Paul's just said moments ago that by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the answer is faith in Christ. An immediate benefit of that declaration is that you receive forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ. But that still seems too good to be true. How can God be just just by me having faith in his son? It would be too good to be true if it weren't for the truth of the gospel. Paul explains this in detail in Romans chapter 3. He says in verses 21 through 26, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does all this mean? It means that you and I can be justified on the basis that Christ has poured out his blood for the forgiveness of your sins and that you may receive that forgiveness by faith in Christ and repentance from sin. It means that God is just because he didn't turn a blind eye to sin, but rather enforced his just punishment of it by sending his son, 
Jesus Christ, to pour out his own blood on the cross so that the sins of those who have faith in Christ and turn from their sin would be atoned for. The payment for sin was made. It means that God has revealed a righteousness that comes apart from the law. And even though the law and the prophets look forward to its coming, they couldn't themselves provide that righteousness. There's a forgiveness in it that Christ accomplished that can be ours through faith. And that our sin and our shame and condemnation became Christ's on the cross. You see this. We receive by faith all the benefits that Christ has merited because he has received all of the sin and condemnation that we have earned. This is the great exchange. We call it the doctrine of imputation. To impute something means to ascribe something to someone in a real legally binding way. This is what Martin Luther said of this imputation, of this exchange. Accordingly, the believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has as though it were its own. And whatever the soul has, Christ claims as his own. Let us compare these and we shall see inestimable benefits. Benefits beyond compare. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now, let faith come between them and sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? Ah, you just say, that's just Luther riffing in the 16th century about the Roman Catholics and the Pope and all that. That's just, that's just him being, what a gripe, right? Wrong. Second century, letter to Diognetus. Hear these words. This has been the belief of the church the whole time. He himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for those who are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. O unsearchable operation, O benefits surpassing all expectation, that the wickedness of many should be hid in the single righteous one, and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. To the truth of justification, there could be no sweeter words than were written by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friend, when you are justified before God, you're covered in the righteousness of Christ completely, so that when God looks at you, he sees the work of his son applied directly to you. And the incredible news is that you don't have to spend your life wondering whether or not God loves you. We don't have to play the little French game, he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Justification is permanent and irrevocable because of what will be declared on the last day is being declared today to those who have faith in Christ, who apprehend all of who he is. And he took on all of who we are so that we would be presented blameless to the Father 
on the last day. So I ask you, are you worried about this? Do you have assurance of your faith? Do you go through life wondering whether or not God loves you? If you are justified, hear these truths. Consider this from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, present tense, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9. I'll go all the way through 11. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And just for good measure, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are justified, you're justified. You don't have to worry about what will happen through the rest of your life until the end, wondering if God will accept you. If you're justified, you're justified. You have the righteousness of Christ, and you have it now. Justification is the present declaration of what will be revealed again at the end of time. And it all comes by faith. Now, what about faith? Are we justified by our faith? Yes, but faith in what? Is faith the grounds of our justification or is it the instrument? Faith is the instrument of our justification. It's like the hammer and chisel of the sculptor. The sculptor is the one who takes the obelisk, that unchiseled piece of stone, and creates a masterpiece out of it. We are the sculpture that God has created, and God is the sculptor. And faith is his instrument. Faith is no work of our own. In fact, if it's a work of all, if it's a work at all, it's a work of God. Faith is a gift from God through the Holy Spirit given to us. Otherwise, we would be able to boast in our faith as if it were our own work. No, faith is what apprehends Christ. It begins in him and is granted to us in part so that no one can boast in themselves for salvation. And in part, to show the magnificent grace of God in salvation. Acts 3.16 speaks of the faith that is through Jesus. So it begins with the Son, and then Philippians 1.29 shows us that we have been granted faith. We've been granted it in Christ. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.1, if you're wondering if faith originates in you, he speaks of obtaining faith, which implies that it does not in, originate inside of ourselves. You don't obtain something that you already have. Faith comes from above. It is granted to us. And so what is this gift of faith? What does it entail? In faith, we completely relinquish all of our effort, giving up all of the work that we try to do and laying it aside in order that our souls would be tethered to all the work that Christ has done so that by his merits, his righteousness would be ours too and the forgiveness he accomplished added to our account. Faith is no merit of salvation. We don't do that in order to earn salvation. The merit belongs to Christ, and our faith in Christ is justified because the Father raised Christ from the dead for our justification, Romans 4, and we who have by faith in God like Abraham are fully convinced that God has done and will do all that he has promised to. In this way, since God has been faithful to keep his promises... Not only are we justified by God, but God is justified in justifying us. He loses none of his goodness, and we gain absolutely everything. You couldn't make this up. This is how God works. This is the gospel that, that Paul is trying to recover in the churches of Galatia. 
And so now that when you hear that we are saved by faith alone, what I'm saying is shorthand for being saved by Christ alone. Remember, Christ provided the merit, and our faith is a gift from God applied to us by the Spirit. Our only hope for justification is by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, in whom we have faith. It is all a work of the triune God from beginning to end. The old theologians used to say the Father justifies effectively, the Son meritoriously, based on his work. The Spirit applicationally, that means that the Spirit is the one who works that within us. And so he has done it. And in this, all Christians greatly rejoice. The only thing left to say is just hallelujah. One last thing, verse 16. Paul concludes this verse by alluding to the 143rd Psalm, verse 2. He says at the end of 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he's used contrast and repetition thus far to make his argument in these verses. And now we have allusion. He's alluding to 143. It says this, enter not into judgment with your servant. Why? For no one living is righteous before you. And so in case anyone wanted to argue the point with Paul that anyone could be justified by the law, he shows that even the Old Testament saints knew that justification wouldn't come through the law. You can't be justified without being righteous, and there's no one who is righteous except Christ, who is the grounds of our justification. Psalm 143.2 is all we're left with after our pride and our conceit collapses into vanity, and we are put under the examination of God's word. Our great comfort, then, your great comfort, your only Comfort is Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I fear tarrying on too long on verse 16. There's history and treasure here that time doesn't afford us to explore. And so if you want to learn more about justification by faith alone, find me, find John, find Welcome Back, Justin Perry. And we'd be happy to make a book recommendation for you to learn more about this. Let's take a look at verses 17 through 20. Point number two. We are dead to sin and alive to God. Let's start with 17 and 18. It says this. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. This whole section is filled with contrasts. Paul's aim is to address certain criticisms of his teaching. Of course, the justification comes by faith in Christ alone. And so what's the first criticism? It's this. If justification is found in Christ alone apart from the law, this makes Christ a servant of sin by allowing people to live outside of the law. The obvious answer to make a rebuttal to this claim is to acknowledge the truth that's in it, and then address the error as well. And so here's the truth. Yes, seeking righteousness outside of the law reveals me to be a sinner. Indeed, Paul and Peter knew that in order for them to be saved, they had to view themselves as being no better than the Gentiles before God when it comes to being sinners. Nobody likes to say, I'm no better than the worst sinner. But until you see yourself in that way, You have no hope of being a recipient of God's grace. So, Paul had no trouble with the accusation that he's a sinner. 
because forgiveness of sins only comes through a confession of those sins. But does Paul seeking justification outside of the law make Christ a minister of sin? As the old translations used to say, a minister of sin. The retort to the critic is simply this, certainly not. Christ is no minister of sin, but rather a savior to the sinner. We've established that the law reveals sin and that the law and the prophets bore witness to a righteousness that would come outside of the law. And so Christ is the fulfillment of that righteousness that the law and the prophets testified to. Therefore, this knowledge of our own sinfulness doesn't make Christ a minister of sin. It makes him the savior to the sinners and our only hope for salvation. Now look at verse 18. Here's the explanation. If Paul rebuilds the law in his life for righteousness sake, the only thing that he'll accomplish is revealing or proving his own sinfulness. The Judaizers in Galatia were doing this very thing, rebuilding the law in an attempt to find righteousness through it instead of trusting in Christ alone for their justification. So it's pointless to try and rebuild what has been torn down that couldn't provide righteousness in the first place. Why would you rebuild that which doesn't get you what you're aiming for? And so there's a question for us to ask in here, and it's a good one for you and I to ponder on regularly. What do I rebuild in my life where I try to merit righteousness or justification with God? What vain pursuit, what law that points to my sinfulness do I build a resume on that I can present to God in the future in order to get him to love me? It all points to our own sinfulness. You must know by this point that none of those things will ever justify you before God. So why rebuild them? Again, you'll spend your whole life doing as the French do. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Though we can't work for our salvation, I want to make a point here that it is important that salvation leads to the fruit of good works that come as a result of our salvation. There's a difference in these works. Okay, There's the works where you try to merit God's favor and righteousness, and then there's the works that come based on the love of God, knowing that God has loved you and sent his son to die for you. The first is a, the, the work that's good is a glad response to God's forgiveness. But faith in Christ plus working to earn righteousness, which is what the Judaizers, the Jewish Christians, were attempting to teach, that's the false gospel present day of the Roman Catholic Church. Faith that leads to assurance and work out of love for God because we've been justified by God is the true gospel of the true church. And sadly, millions of people around the world and throughout history have gotten this wrong. And I'm certain that some of you have Roman Catholic family members in this room. Perhaps some of you in this room are members of the Roman Catholic Church. And this isn't just a problem that made the headlines in the 16th century when Martin Luther uh, wrote his 95 theses about indulgences and then presented a defense for justification by faith alone for the rest of his life. Now, the Roman Catholic Church still has the doctrine of purgatory. They still have the ordinances of baptismal regeneration and penance needed for the infusion of righteousness so that you can go and live in order to work in a way that pleases God until you commit mortal sins and need to receive righteousness infused again through penance. If you believe in that kind of gospel, which we believe is a false gospel, 
You'll spend your whole life wondering if God really, truly loves you. Wondering if you're right with him. Wondering if you've done enough to make him happy. Enough to justify you in the end. Belief in the gospel, not gospel plus, is the answer to the question, does God love me? How can you know that God loves you? Paul will tell you in just a second. If you stick with us, Paul will tell you in just a second. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. These are some of the most beautiful words of Scripture. Verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's another contrast. Through the law, Paul died to the law in order that he might live to God. What does this mean? Simply, that he gave up on the law as his hope for finding righteousness so that he would find life in God. He died to something lesser in order to be made alive to something far greater, something truly alive. How did Paul die to the law? What does that mean? He did that in Christ's crucifixion. The Christian is united to Christ. There's a doctrine of the union of Christ, which we'll explore later as we move through the book of Galatians. Christians united with Christ, including in his death. In the death of Christ, the demands of justice for sin are met And so as we died with him, we also died of finding righteousness in the law. For Christ has merited righteousness for us. He's earned it for us. We see several instances of scripture telling us, teaching us, that we identify with Christ in his death. Romans 6, 8. John, you always wanted a sermon series on Romans. You're kind of getting it today a little bit. In Romans 6, 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 2 Timothy 2.11, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. In this union, we find life in Christ himself. A life that the law could never provide. This is another indication that justification belongs to us now. And not something we have to wait for. There will be a final justification when the full benefits of our union with Christ will be realized. A glorified body. Presence with him personally, in person. Eternal life that that never fades or perishes at all. No more tears, no more sickness or sadness or grief or sorrow. That's coming. But today, we still get to experience the beauty of union with Christ. We still get to experience some of the benefits of what he has earned for us. Fellowship with God. Love and peace between us and God that has been worked out by Christ. Fellowship with one another. The joy of getting to worship him gladly through song and through prayer, and through submitting to his word. We still get to know him today. And in the future, we'll get to see all of it so much more clearly. The life that we live now, we who believe in him, we live by faith. In this union with Christ, we live by faith. We don't live in the power of the flesh any longer, but rather in light of our blessed union with Christ. This matter of the love of Christ that we find in him. I wonder, do you know whether or not you have the love of God? Do you believe in him? And I don't mean generally the demons believe in God. I mean, do you devote your trust, all of your faith that he will do everything that he has promised to do to him? 
Friend, he has not made salvation too far from you. What keeps you from him, if you're outside of him, if you do not know if he loves you, if you have not yet confessed your sins and repented from them and placed faith alone in Christ for salvation, what keeps you from that, to help you understand, is your own sin and your desire to hold on to it. But freedom is at hand. It's right here. We've been talking about it. We've been talking about how justification is found in Christ alone. You can be right before God because of what Christ did. He offers you hope for righteousness. The righteousness that you must have in order to be right with him. So let me tell you about how he did that. In the gospel, Jesus Christ came from heaven. The perfect begotten Son of God, of the unbegotten God. God's the Father. Christ is His Son. His Son was sent into the world to live in obedience to His heavenly Father, never wavering from that at all because of His love for His Father. In His life, He fulfilled all the demands of the law that you and I simply cannot do because of our sin. But because He was God's Son, He was hated by the world. The Bible says that he came into the world and the world did not recognize him. He came unto his own and his own did not know him. The Bible says that he was betrayed and hated and falsely accused for things that he did not do. And in doing that, he was brought before trial to be murdered on a cross, crucified. Why? Not for the things that he had done, but for the things that you and I have done for the sins that you and I have committed, to pay the debt that you and I deserve to pay, to absorb the wrath of God that is due all sin, so that those who have faith in him would not have to endure that, so that you wouldn't have to sit under the wrath of God for eternity. And he died. He hung and bled on a cross, and he died. A real death, not a fake death. He did not go off into hiding He died. And three days later, he came back from the dead. He was resurrected in order that he might show that not only does he have power over sin, but he has power over death. And in his resurrection, those who have faith in him will receive the same resurrection. We will all who have faith in him be glorified with him forever. There is hope that one day, even after we die, our bodies will come up from the ground and we will reign with him for eternity. That is the gospel. That is what he did. He came, he lived, he died, he rose for you and your salvation. Friend, if you don't believe in that, what keeps you from that? What is stopping you? So I'd plead with you, for the love of God, and I mean that sincerely, find somebody, find a Christian in here, a member of this church, one of our pastors, find me. We will tell you the gospel. We will pray with you. We will counsel you towards what it means to believe in Christ for salvation. Let's take a look at verse 21. This is our final point, and it'll be brief. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose remember he's talking to Peter essentially he's saying to Peter brother 
By your actions in Antioch, you're nullifying the grace of God by saying that gospel plus works equals righteousness. We're not recipients of righteousness through the law. We're recipients of righteousness through God's grace revealed in Jesus Christ. And so in saying that to Peter, he's saying to the Galatians as well, and by extension us, there is no hope to be found in pursuing righteousness through your own effort. And so finally he delivers the nail in the coffin. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's a perfectly valid question. What good does it do for Christ to come and die if righteousness could be obtained from the law? No good at all. No good at all. Christ did not die needlessly. He died so that you and I, by faith in him alone, could find justification. And with it, the glorious benefits of our union with Christ. You cannot work. You simply cannot work to earn God's favor. I mentioned earlier, how do we know? How will we know? How does Paul tell us that we know that God loves us? Not because we work for him, but he loves us because he died for us. Because Christ died for us. I pray that you believe that. I pray that you proclaim that. And that your entire life is built on this simple truth. That we can only be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, and for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have heard from your word the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ. Lord, it's a doctrine that often seems too great for human words because of how marvelous your grace towards us is in it. So I pray that as we think on it, I pray as we revel in it, I pray as we consider it over the next few moments of silence, help us to know Help us to repent. Help us to find hope in you. May we all see, God, that there is just no hope for righteousness with you based on our own efforts. There is no hope for righteousness in adding anything to your gospel. Christ has done all that is needed for us to be justified pray that gives us great comfort. I also pray that it causes us, each of us, to spread this gospel far and wide so that those who need to hear it would hear it and that they would hear it regularly and that they would find their only hope for salvation in Christ alone. And so help us over these next few moments of silence to reflect on these things, asking the Spirit of God to reveal to us how we ought to respond.